Hey everyone, I'm Jana Panaritas and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. A quick program note, we're on a summer break and we'll be back on Thursday, September 14th with all new episodes. In the meantime, here's one of my favorites from the archives. It was recorded in May of 2016 with Nashville, Tennessee native Phelan Lewis. Phelan's a PhD candidate currently living in England, where she's been studying an often overlooked population, youth caregivers, children ages 8 to 18, who, for a variety of reasons, are forced to care for a family member. I hope you enjoy this spirited conversation with a researcher on a mission. Here's the show. Phelan Lewis was born and raised in the Nashville, Tennessee area, but she's currently attending school in England, where she's a PhD in social work candidate at the University of Birmingham. Phelan's research is focused on what she calls the hidden lives of young adult caregivers in the United States and the United Kingdom. Why did she choose this area of research? Well, that's Phelan's story to tell, and I can't wait to hear this story. Phelan Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jana. It's great to be here. You grew up in the Nashville area. Tell us about your childhood and how and when things changed. Uh, well, yeah, I grew up in Nashville. Um, had a very happy, very loving, um, I guess for all intents and purposes, quite a very normal childhood. And all of that changed for me um, and my family when I was about 11 years old. Um, my mom, um, she was, you know, perfectly healthy. She was uh, running marathons and working as a registered nurse. She was diagnosed with a degenerative disc disease. Oh, a degenerative disc disease. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, at the time, I would have been about 11 years old. And my mom had a surgery uh, for that. And the doctor took out uh, bones from her neck that he shouldn't have. Oh, gosh. And Right. So my mom is expecting to be, you know, in the hospital recovering, you know, a few days. And, uh-huh. um, but that turned into months of rehab. And at the time, so it's, it's me and my family, my mom, and I have an older brother, Farrell. Uh-huh. And he's seven years older than me. And at the time, he would have been entering his sophomore year in college. Uh-huh. And that weekend of the surgery, you know, he came home, you know, just thinking he was going to, you know, cook some meals on the house and, mm-hmm. and, and take right. care of me. But yeah. because the surgery went wrong, him coming home from college ended up lasting for the rest of his life up until quite recently for him. And what was his name? Farrell. Farrell. Okay. And is he your only sibling? Yes. Okay. And there's and a seven year age difference. Seven year age difference. So he so you were eleven and he was eighteen when this happened. So the doctor incorrectly removed um a bone from her neck and then things changed radically. And um are your parents still married? Uh no. Uh my parents divorced when I was probably about third grade. Okay. Uh, um, so mm-hmm. it was just you, your mom and your brother. And so when he came home with the idea of going back, tell us how both of your lives changed. Well, for me, certainly, um, you know, I remember being so scared um, and just clueless, really, as to what was going on. Um, there are a lot of questions unanswered. You know, my mom, you know, one day was healthy and fine, and then the next day, you know, couldn't get out of bed, um, was wearing a neck brace, and just completely, life just catastrophically changed for me. So just really just feeling um, just worried all the time. And my brother, um, the amazing person that he is, you know, again, he stayed home from college. You know, he ended up dropping out to stay home because there really wasn't anyone to to be there in the home that needed to be there besides him. 
So for him, you know, he was doing very well uh, studying engineering at college and had friends and, you know, had all these hobbies and all of that completely changed for him too. So for my mom, you know, she needed around-the-clock care, you know, help to the bathroom, help with getting a shower, help with dressing, cooking, cleaning, all of that. And my brother did that. He was the one that took that on. And for myself, you know, he would take me to school every day and pick me up, help me with homework. Um, He really kind of stepped into that parental role Mm -hmm. um, in terms of running our household. Mm-hmm. And not only did he help with, you know, with physical support and emotional support and transportation, he also ended up getting, you know, a full-time job to start paying for the mortgage and all of our household bills. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so for this person, he was single, you know, having the, having the time of his life at college, mm-hmm. all of that changed. You know, he now had a family to take care of. Yeah. Um, so I would not be where I am today if it was not for the sacrifices that my brother made in terms of looking after me and for my mom. Wow. Prior to that, was she the primary wage earner in your family, in your small family? She was. Yeah. Yes, she was. And what was she she doing? So she worked as a registered nurse. She worked on the labor and delivery floor. So so loves the babies. And so how old was she when this happened? Oh, good question. Let's see. She would have been in her early 40s. And how did this condition progress? You said your brother was home for a while. Take us through the next few years. Okay. Well, for my mom, she had a number of surgeries to try to correct uh, what went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So there, there were more surgeries to come in the years after. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, it was went to no avail. So she, went, she really hasn't improved in terms of, you know, back to where she was but before that first surgery. But if you meet my mom, you know, she, she's very vibrant, mm-hmm. uh, full of life. Um, she, you know, she's able to walk around now. Okay. Um, she's not able to go back to work, so she now has disability. And for her, you know, chronic pain is an issue. So she's got good days and bad days. Um, if she does too much, that'll be a very bad day. It ends up being a very bad week or two weeks. Right, right. If you can't get out of bed. But so you just really kind of never know um, for her how her pain will be. Um, and that will likely be something that she'll live with the rest of her life. Uh-huh. So she's managing her pain right now. Yes, um, exactly. And who's, who's taking care of her? Right. Um, so my brother still lives at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is still the primary caregiver for my mom. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a huge adjustment for him. And tell us about your culture and how that informed how you all handled this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, for us, uh, we're African-American and there are also people that are uh, very religious. So we're also Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think having those two backgrounds for us, I think, really, I guess, supported us mm-hmm. and kind of shaped, you know, our philosophy towards taking care of my mom. So definitely, when you think about our ethnicity and the culture, family is very important. You don't mm-hmm. leave anyone behind. Mm-hmm. You definitely take care of your elders and look after them. Um, and then religiously as well, I think our faith has been something that, in, in the face of insurmountable odds, really, mm-hmm. yeah. has been something that has, has powered us through and allowed us to have hope. I, I'd say both, both of those backgrounds for us have really kind of pulled and, and supported us through what, all of it. Mm-hmm. What sort of support services did you have access to, you and your brother, for your mom? You know, I wish I could say that we did have external support, but we didn't have anything. It was all on my brother mainly, and then because I'm in the home, you know, you're helping out as as I could um, as a child. But it was really just us. Um, we certainly have a very good church family, and then you know, extended family. But when you think about that day to day care that's around the clock, that falls on the people that are in the home. So for us, it was my brother. 
and the name, you know, whenever I could help out. So I wish I could say we had support, but but we really didn't. Wow. It was all on you guys. Exactly. So you were home as well during the years that your mom was ailing. As you entered your teens and mm-hmm. you were still living at home with your mom, what were some of the hardest parts about your experience? Um, for me, I'd say the most difficult thing would be just feeling absolutely alone. I didn't know anyone else who had an experience with my family. I went to a small private Christian school. Um, the teachers were very supportive, but I didn't know anyone else that was my age who you know, was looking after their parent or a grandparent or anyone else. So mm. I just felt very isolated. felt like no one could understand uh, what I was going through. Did you discuss um, it? I, I actually really didn't know. Uh-huh. Um, and right, yeah, I kept it quiet, mainly because, you know, for me, I always thought, you know, we have so much going on at home. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, discuss and become a problem. And then I, I didn't want to be a burden in any way. Mm-hmm. So, right, so I really kind of kept everything very quiet and just kind of dealt with it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely isolated for me. Hmm. And did your brother talk about it with anybody or was it just all in the family? I'd say all in the family, right? Yeah. And I think for him as well, um, social isolation is something that is definitely part of his story, too, um, because, you know, he certainly had a lot of friends off in college. But with him coming home, you know, people try to stay in touch. But after a while, you're in a completely different life path. They're continuing to go on and and thinking about their college classes and and extracurricular activities. And my brother's having to think about taking me to school and helping with his mom. So just very different life paths. And so I think as time went on, um, those friends kind of left him behind. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for my brother, he he became very isolated in terms of he really just had us as our family Mm -hmm. um, in terms of people to to talk to and rely on in terms Mm -hmm. of emotional support. And how did his health go? Of course, he had the advantage of being young, but that can be a terrible strain for a young person, for anyone. Were there outward signs of how this affected him? I wouldn't say outward signs necessarily so. Um, He didn't have any issue, you know, in terms of back strain or that type of thing Uh um, that we know of. Um, I think the emotional impacts hit very strongly for him. Anxiety, feelings of sadness, all those things you kind of keep quiet (laughs) for yourself. I I think that's probably the most salient part for him. How old is Um, he now? Emotional impact. 35 years old. Oh, he's 35. Yeah, he's 36, but, yeah, he'll be 36 in a few months. Yeah. Okay, and so you're 29, or thereabouts, right? <laughs> my, right, right, yes. right? Yes, okay. that's right. Yes. So he's going to be 36. He's living with his mom, and he's the main wage earner in the family for her. And Yes. Yeah, okay. And, and what sort of work yes. is he doing in addition to taking care of your mom? So he's always worked in logistics, so working for companies like FedEx. Yeah. And so he's working for another um, company now um, that works in logistics as well. So he's not at home 24-7. He's out on the job and then he comes home. Is your mom safe at home on her own? Yes, she is. Yeah, she is. Okay, that's good to hear. (laughs) Yes, yes. We we can leave it. For her, it's really more just making sure she doesn't stay too much. Um, if there's something that, you know, she can't reach or it's too heavy to lift, you know, she'll wait till one of us gets home, that type of thing. Um, so she's okay to be left on her own. It's really more there's just certain things that she just can't do for herself um, right. that someone else has to do for her. And what is her medical condition now? Is it managing the after effects of the operation that didn't go well? Or what is her diagnosis now? Um, to be completely honest, if you... I'm not sure if he's actually ever been really given a name. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Um, mm. I, I think. I think at this point, it's managing the effects from the surgery that was that was incorrect. And I think there's still some things that my mom, you know, even as a nurse, I think that she'll notice 
Um, like her memory, she feels like has really been impacted. So long-term memory, there's definitely, she always says that she relied on me and my brother to to remember some things for her and recall Uh things besides pain, memory effects. Um, Sometimes um, she has issues with um, muscle spasm as well, so so nerve damage Mm -hmm. there. But in terms of a specific name, I I think it's more just trying to cope Mm -hmm. (laughs) with day to day. Mm -hmm. But you said she went in for a throat surgery? It was a spinal surgery. A spinal surgery. Yes. And how old is your mom now? She's 58. Well, we do have memory problems when we get older. <laughs> I wouldn't read too much into that. But but she sounds like she's managing pretty well. And probably because she was a nurse, she has a good grasp on her own body probably, right? And how to sort of self-diagnose, for lack of a better phrase. It's great. It just seems like it, it would be helpful that she was a nurse. Right. I certainly think so. Right. Certainly. Um, and I think for my mom, you know, she's able to kind of stay on top of things and be aware of things, perhaps, as you say, more than other people who maybe don't have that same education. And mm-hmm. she does. Does she drive? Um, she does. Yeah, she okay. does drive. She's so able she, to drive now. That's good. She's able to drive. So things are a little bit better than they were when you were growing up in terms of the care. But what a heavy burden for both you and your brother. Well, especially your brother, as you made it clear. Mm-hmm. I guess he's going to bypass those gates and go straight to heaven, huh? <laughs> no questions asked. <laughs> yes, um, that's right. You should, anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about your research. Can you give us an idea of why you chose to do this particular research? So I actually was, I was doing a master's in counseling, and I knew that I wanted to do something that dealt with young adults who are caregivers, simply because I reflected on the experience that my brother had, seeing his experience and growing up with him and recognizing how he just didn't have any support and all of the effects that I saw with that. Um, I knew I wanted to do something more with that. So at the time, I was writing a paper about young adult caregivers, and I had an advisor who said, he knew I wanted to continue to do more research at that. You know, he said, well, why don't you look into where you could go? Where, where is that research coming out of that mm-hmm. you, could, you could study? And for me, that was England. Mm-hmm. So going to study abroad certainly wasn't on my radar. But thankfully, because of that advisor, it, it became something that I thought of. Like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> go, yeah. go where the research is going. So yeah. um, because in the United States, you know, we really have not done far enough research of children or young adults who are caregivers. But over there in the United Kingdom, they have. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this would have been about 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I decided, you know, I am really interested in the ways that um, your identity has been impacted as a result of caregiving while you're young adults. And that largely stems from watching my brother. Every part of who he was was impacted from caregiving. Mm-hmm. So that really fueled um, the dissertation that I'm now, now about to start writing. So mm-hmm. about 2013, I went over to England to study with Professor Saul Becker. He is the kind of the leading world expert in the field of children and young adults who are caregivers. And they're called young carers over there across across the pond. And so uh, so it's just been an absolute privilege to be over there the last two years to study with him and just see the models that have been used there, both in the United Kingdom and in the rest of Europe, because the U.S., unfortunately, is about 15 to 20 years behind those countries in terms of support policy for the younger age of of caregivers. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of what sort of policies are in place that benefit young adult caregivers overseas? Sure, sure. So um, over there in the United Kingdom, they have something that's been recently passed called the CARE Act. And so that gives local authorities Maybe like county government, maybe here might be the county best government. equivalent. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. That, might, that might be the best equivalent for us. 
they are now required to um, identify and assess children who are, as they would say, carers or caregivers. And once they have identified um, those children that are caregivers, they have to assess what needs that they have and, and then help them find support. So um, that may mean you know, connecting with social workers or other social services. The other thing that's very different from, from our country, over there in the United Kingdom, they have dozens and dozens and dozens of what they call carers projects. And so we've called them nonprofit organizations. Mm-hmm. And they're organizations that are dedicated to working with children and young adults who are caregivers. And um, I've been able to visit dozens and dozens of these projects. So if you walk into one, and um, you know they're brightly colored. They have you know they have arts and crafts sections. They have support groups, so you can meet people that are your peers that are carers. They have counselors. They have social workers. They do work in the schools, so they help teachers and school nurses identify children and young adults that are carers. So it's been certainly interesting to see all the different ways that policy has informed hmm. and the work in terms of support that they receive mm-hmm. there over there across the pond. It's very different from, from our country. It's very proactive, it sounds like. How are these young adult carers? And it's interesting because we're the only ones that use the word caregivers. This is, a, this is an American word. Overseas, they're carers or mm-hmm. they're just people who look after their loved ones. But anyhow, <laughs> how are these young adult carers identified? Mm. Well, through uh, a number of ways. You could be, say, if you are attending a high school or a, a college, probably more, we'll focus on high school. That's probably a bit easier in terms of explaining. So um, perhaps maybe the guidance counselor in the school, they may send out a form and um, to assess does anyone in our school, are you looking after someone for unpaid care? You know, maybe a certain number of hours a week. Do you have a parent in the home that you're looking after a sibling or a grandparent? Um, so probably sending out, right, so sending out a questionnaire um, mm-hmm. to the people that are attending the school to see who comes forward. But on the subject of mentioning identification, I should mention self-identification is something that is still quite an issue for young adults and even children that are caregivers. Not necessarily always seeing yourself as a carer or mm-hmm. a caregiver mm-hmm. um, because you're just helping out at home. You, know, right. you might be doing, as they might say, oh, I'm just doing a little bit more than everybody else. And so self-identification is a huge part of this. So we need to think about how do you, how do you identify them? If you want to help how do you find them? And so part of that certainly is for um, for people in schools and colleges, obviously, to interact that way, but then also having caregivers themselves recognize the important role that they have in their families in terms of speaking up and saying that they are a caregiver. Mm-hmm. And you've been back in the U.S. since October, traveling around the country, doing research uh, and interviews with young adult caregivers. Tell us about the demographics of this group other than age, and what sort of questions are you asking? So last summer, I went around England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland doing interviews. And then since I've been back in the country since last October, I've done interviews in the Miami, South Florida area, mm. and D.C., Chicago, Detroit, New York City, Boston, Nashville. Wow, you've really um, been getting around. Yeah, I've been traveling around. Really important for me to get the perspective of as many people as I could. And so, uh, so it's been interesting for me to have both, you know, kind of both sets of interviews to compare from both sets of countries. And some of the things that I'm hearing are related to career, educational choices, and friendships and relationships, particularly as it relates to your identity and how you uh-huh. see yourself, uh-huh. um, and then how you're navigating all of that in the midst of caregiving for someone. So it's been interesting to hear on both, both sets of the countries. I'm hearing very similar things um, in terms of, you know, caregiving affects all parts of who you are. And it's 
kind of a mark that's left on you. They feel like they're more mature than other peers their age who are not caregivers, but are not looking after anyone. And financial issues are definitely something that are the forefront of their minds, both mm-hmm. over there in the United Kingdom and then in our country as well. Because for them, you know, they're trying to balance working along with caregiving. And um, mm-hmm. they're just starting out, just trying to get themselves established. So, And then for those who are trying to go on to college, um, they having the additional financial burden of trying to figure out how you're going to pay for college while also maybe helping out with your family at home and then taking care of yourself financially. So many things are having to juggle financially that certainly poverty is something that they are at risk for. Mm-hmm. And um, even in some of the interviews I've had in the United Kingdom, some of the young people have spoken who've been homeless. Oh, even. Wow. So, right. So it's certainly, certainly when you think about financial impacts, um, certainly something that's very salient for, the, for their experience. You know, when you think about career and education, it's been interesting for me. I'll hear, uh, I'll hear maybe one or two things. One, I may hear that they are choosing to continue in paths that lead them into a helping profession. Into they're a helping profession, be, did you say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, a helping profession. So um, they're going on to be nurses or counselors or social workers or wanting to do something in the in the care world. Mm-hmm. But then I have some young people that I, that I interview that say, you know what, I have had my whole life of taking care of someone. So I want to open up my own business or I want to be a dancer, or I want to uh, go into teaching, or I just want, I want to get as far away from it as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the skills that I've gained from that family experience, and so this sets up well to continue in that in, in terms of a career. So it's been interesting hearing that in terms of career uh, plans for young people. And similarly, education, you know, hearing very similar things, you know, studying psychology or any type of major people feel like I want to help people or they feel they have a direct impact of mm-hmm. helping people. Um, those are kind of the things that I've been hearing both in America and then also in the United Kingdom so far. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., have you heard the folks that you're interviewing express dismay at the lack of support? Do they feel like they're not being heard or they just take it on without question? Mm-hmm. Because it seems like there there is more support in the U.K. Right, exactly, right. Um, I would say the young people that I speak to, once I tell them what's going on abroad, it's definitely um, feelings of anger because they realize, you, you know, you almost don't know things are as bad as they are right. <laughs> until someone else tells you right. how good it could be. Sure. Um, and, and I should also, I, I'd be remiss if I did not say, you know, there's certainly work that needs to continue to be done overseas as well. Sure. Um, but when you compare it, it's certainly very drastic, very drastic world. So um, the young people are definitely very angry, definitely feel powerless. And because, you know, when you think about it, same for my brother, you were going in, working with your family, you're working a job, like, you know, you're really just trying to survive and get through the day. You may not necessarily have time to write a blog, to advocate and write to your, your congressperson, you know, about, you know, your experience with the caregivers. So for these group of young people, definitely feeling unheard and um, powerless is something that I definitely have heard um, when I speak to them. And in terms of support for them, uh, they also feel very, very isolated. Um, many of them, um, I think, which is also, I should say, quite common to a lot of people, I think, in the United States, you know, they're quite shocked when I tell them the numbers in terms of statistics of how many young people are out there caring for someone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many times I think they feel like they're the only one, just as I did, mm-hmm. and just as my brother did when we were growing up. Um, and when I tell them, you know, there's as many as 6.9 million children and young adults <laughs> who are, who are caregiving. And those... 6.9 million 6. children and young adults. in the U.S. or, or yeah, yeah. in the U.S.? In the U.S. Wow. In the U.S. And those, and those numbers are old. 
So we really just don't know how many people are out there, but it's certainly in the millions from the last numbers that we have. And so people are shocked. <laughs> caregivers and those that are not caregivers themselves are shocked. There are millions of people doing this. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing when I, when I talk to kids, which is realize, you know, they feel so isolated and they're the only one, but that's simply not the truth. So building awareness and recognition for the important role that they're playing in their family is something I'm very passionate about. Have there been any surprises for you along the way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, in terms of surprises, um, I'd say probably more, I was really struck by this, um, both when I've been talking to young people, when you think about emotional effects, you know, you're certainly expecting to hear things about anxiety and worry um, and feeling sad. But when I start thinking of more severe mental health, hearing thoughts about suicide or, oh. or self-harming behaviors because of it, yeah. that's something that I think I've been really struck by. I'm knowing, you know, young people also tend to struggle with that anyway. Sure. But hearing because, you know, just the stress of their lives or the social isolations they feel and feeling absolutely hopeless, thinking about the severe mental health aspects and then the just lack of mental health services in terms of being accessible to them. That's certainly concerning for me. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something that I'm not necessarily surprised by it, but something that when I've spoken to just overwhelmingly, I keep hearing that's certainly concerning for me as both a researcher and then also someone who was, I'm trained as a counselor, certainly. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're thinking towards the future in terms of the work that needs to be done, you know, certainly policy comes to my mind first in terms of, you know, how can we push funding towards this area in terms of research? You know, we need updated numbers uh, with things like paid family leave. That's something that's definitely on the forefront of my mind. Then access to mental health services, mm-hmm. uh, that's certainly something else. And then when you think about access to going to college and then uh, and then onwards in terms of education, you know, grants and scholarships and, and that, that type of thing um, would be really helpful for this group of young people. Has it been hard to relive some of these issues after your own experience? Um, I might not say hard. I'd probably say it's giving me uh, certainly perspective um, uh-huh. because I think for myself, um, in full disclosure, I really thought uh, I, I was the only one, as I said, uh, growing uh-huh. up. And it wasn't until I went over to England and, and started going to some of the CARES projects that I met other young people who, oh, yeah, had a very similar experience that I did or wow. that my friends did. Mm-hmm. And so, again, for me, I think it's been almost cathartic, I think, mm-hmm. being able to do the research that I've been able to do. And I think all of it, just hearing the stories, really just motivate me to know, you know, this is the path that, that I'm on in life to, to, to do support, you know, to, to help them um, and to speak up for them um, when they may not be able to do so because of time or just caregiving responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Certainly a challenge. <laughs> Certainly challenged me. Yeah. Well, there are some rewards to caregiving. Have you heard any positive stories in your research? Yes, yes, certainly. You know, um, when you talk to young people, and, you, and, and this would be the same for caregivers for all ages, uh, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? You know, why, why do you do this? Why do you make the choice to care every single day? Love and devotion and wanting to give back to someone else. Um, those are the things that I hear, and those are the things that are true even for myself and for my family, you know, for my brother. There's such a close bond that we have as a family because of our experience. We know that no matter what, what we go through in the rest of life, uh, right. we have each other's back. You know, we can count on each other. And so it is amazing to think of this really supportive support system that, that we've had that we've built together through all these years. And I think that's very similar to a lot of the stories that I've heard from other young people as well that just the close bond that they have with their people. And then also, I think the skills that you gain from being a caregiver at a particularly young age, I think, is setting them up well um, in terms of managing things on in the workplace, uh, managing their own households, you know, they go on to have their own families and children. 
independent from, you know, the one they had at birth. There's, there's certainly a, a, just a, a lengthy list uh, of skills that you gain from being a caregiver, mm-hmm. um, you know, time management, paying bills, um, <laughs> uh, having a sense of humor. <laughs> there's right. certainly the list could go on. <laughs> and right. Then, Right. All kinds of life skills you didn't know that you could get. That very difficult experience. So what's next for you? You're writing your dissertation. How long will that take and what's next? Right. So I'll have a six months ahead of writing Mm -hmm. uh, and rewriting my dissertation or nearly do a book. I think by the time time it's done. So um, so I have that ahead and then certainly uh, defending um, my thesis and mm-hmm. the next couple of months, and then hopefully graduating by next summer. And then for me, uh, short-term and um, and long-term, you know, I think research is something that's certainly important and needed in this field. We don't know what we don't know uh-huh. <laughs> about this group of young people. Right. But then for me, advocacy work is something that I'm extremely passionate about, um, speaking up for children and for young adults that are caregivers being an advocate in any way that may be working in the nonprofit sector, that may be working in policy, however that may look like over the span of my career, that's certainly something that I have my eye to. Uh huh. Have you been able to spend some time with your mom while you're here? Yes, I have. Yes, it's, it's been really good to um, to just reconnect with her, and uh, we've, we're doing a lot of eating. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so like I know a lot of weight since I've been back home, but it's been it's been absolutely wonderful um, to be here with her and with my brother as well. Yeah, um, and it, it's just been good for us um, too in, in terms of you know talking through the research that I've been doing and then saying, oh yes, uh huh, that makes sense. Yes, we went there as a family, <laughs> as we you know we're hearing right. as various stories come out. So, but it's been all over. Around, uh, it's been positive, and I think you know, as I kind of reflect on our on our family experience and family journey, you know, I think something certainly very negative and catastrophic happened to us. But I see so much good being created out of what happened to us in terms of being able to advocate for other young people. So it's been for me. I, I have to say, it's been positive, <laughs> even though it may not start it off that way. Certainly ending that way. Are any of your friends, your peers, doing similar work, like from back home? And are you sharing with them what you're doing? Mm, yeah, I don't. I don't have anyone in my circle of friends that are caregivers. Perhaps one day, perhaps say one day they will be, as we yeah. like to say, like one day in some way you'll be a caregiver sooner or later. But yeah, you know, I certainly have a group of friends that are also very equally passionate about their own, you know, social causes. So mm-hmm. I have had a very supportive group of friends surrounding me and um, even as I'm kind of going through the research and hearing you know very disheartening stories I've got uh, a good group of friends that will call me up and say how was your day are you okay do you need to process through what you heard that's great I, I have a very good support network mm-hmm. going back just for a moment to the research how did you find those folks that you interviewed in the U.S. that has been certainly probably the most difficult part of my uh, research in the United States has been recruiting for my interviewees I think because of the, na- the hidden nature of caregiving for those that are um, that are in the younger ages, uh, it's been extremely difficult. I don't think I knew it was going to be difficult coming back coming back home to do that, but I don't think I was aware of how difficult it would be. So I've done YouTube videos, I have done announcements on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and all social media, Twitter. I've been I've taken up blog writing and doing visits word of mouth. So, um, you know, going by various support groups, either type of hospitals mm-hmm. or just out in the community. Any, any way, if you have any connection to me, you've probably heard me talk about my research. 
uh, doing hundreds and hundreds of emails out to organizations all around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I admit, I was really blown away by um, the response came back from people in terms of, oh, um, you know, this is really great research. We had we didn't know, we don't know of anyone, or um, we didn't, we haven't even heard of this topic before. We never thought about this before. So it's been interesting even just in getting the feedback from other people, kind of just a lack of general lack of awareness that we still have in our mm-hmm. country about younger age caregivers. So recruitment has been difficult, um, but once the holidays, once Thanksgiving and Christmas uh, were over, people started slowly trickling in. <laughs> so in the United Kingdom, I have uh, about 27 interviews and uh-huh. then 28 interviews so far here in the United States. Okay. So, um, so very comparative numbers. Are there any programs in the U.S. that you're particularly impressed with in terms of newer models of care support for, yeah, for caregivers yeah. in general and, and also for young adult caregivers? Well, I would certainly be remiss if I did not mention the American Association of Caregiving Youth. And that is a nonprofit organization run in Boca Raton, Florida, led by Connie Soskowski. And she's the founder and director of that amazing nonprofit. And that is an organization dedicated to working with children who are caregivers and for someone in their family. Um, she works with those that are about 18, 19 on down, so children. On down, so okay. on the youth. And she has done tremendous work in our country. And that is really our only one national nonprofit that we really? have in our country. What's the yes. name of it again? The American Association of Caregiving Youth. And Connie has been an amazing advocate in terms of wanting to reach out to the rest of the country in terms of building more affiliate organizations. Mm-hmm. So for right now, she, though, is working with the school system there in Florida. Uh, she does have other uh, researchers in the field. And my research is looking at 18 to 25-year-olds. So I had the opportunity when I, I got back in the country to go and interview some of the young people that have aged out of their programs, the, the 18 to 25-year-olds that had left. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with before we take off? Um, well, I, I suppose for me, I'd really want to speak to those that are caregiving um, on the younger age that, you know, I've had a very similar experience. So I'm very much aware of just the difficulty <laughs> that you are living in and at times you may feel hopeless. But speak up when you can in any way that you can. If that may mean writing, if that may mean telling a friend about what you do at home, in any way you can, try not to keep quiet because the more we have of, of people like you speaking up, the more the rest of our country knows about the important role that you have in your family. And um, For those that are not caregivers, um, I would encourage you to listen and be empathetic and then do what you can to be an advocate for younger age caregivers um, and speak up for them when they may not be able to. And Phelan, where can listeners learn more about your work and how can they connect with you? Twitter is probably the easiest, the quickest way. I'm always tweeting okay. <laughs> about my research and then and then also some other caregiving things going on. Um, so my Twitter handle is my name, so it would just be um, at Phelan Lewis. Okay. Well, Phelan Lewis, thank you so much for being on the show. I love the energy that you're bringing to this conversation, and I'm thrilled that you're producing research in this area. It's so needed, and I, I wish you all the best, and let us know how it goes. Thank you, Dana. Yeah, it's been so great. Thank you so much for having me and being an advocate yourself in this. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and edited by me, Jana Panaritis, and you can listen to the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is also distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. 
24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. And don't forget to check out our website for more amazing caregiving stories from the field. Go to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and find out how you can be a guest on the show. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.